It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody, to our weekly current events uh, uh, class. And uh, I hope you'll be interested in the subject I've picked today. But um, before I quite get to that, I wanted to actually do something I don't normally do, which is to uh, read a short article in the New York Times that I read uh, this week that was so well written and so impressive and so interestingly argued that I thought that it definitely bears worth um, uh, hearing about. So maybe we'll start with that. The author is someone named Heather McGee. And I'm going to read, I may not read the entire thing, but I'll kind of go through it and maybe paraphrase and stop to discuss a little bit. Um, This person is the author of a book called The Sum of Us, S-U-M, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. So this is a kind of a bit of a precy about of of that book. So um, I'm just going to start reading and, you know, uh, we'll see where we go with this. Over a two-decade career in the white-collar think tank world, I've continuously wondered, why can't we have nice things? By we, I mean America at large. As for nice things, I don't picture self-driving cars, hovercraft backpacks, or laundry that does itself. Instead, I mean the basic aspects of a high-functioning society. Well-funded schools, reliable infrastructure, wages that keep workers out of poverty, uh, and a comprehensive public health system equipped to handle pandemics. Things that equally developed but less wealthy nations seem to have. So what she means by equally developed and less wealthy nations, uh, she means places like us, like Canada, France, England, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, um, you know, uh, the Scandinavian countries, All of these countries uh, basically have um, less uh, average wealth than U.S. has, but far better measures on all of the things that she just mentioned. Um, You know, health health system, education system, uh, uh, wages, uh, um, et cetera. In other words, a more equal society like Canada has, and and yet keeping a relatively high standard. Um, in 2010, eight years into my time as an economic policy worker, um, budget deficits were on the rise. The Great Recession, that means the recession of 2007, 2008, had decimated tax revenue, requiring more public spending to restart the economy. But both the Tea Party, uh, which is this kind of, uh, we'll call it a right-wing, um, movement within the Republican Party, and many in Barack Obama's inner circle were calling for a grand bargain. The grand bargain was to shrink the size of government by limiting future public spending and slashing Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Uh, In other words, because um, 
the government wasn't collecting enough money uh, due to the recession, they wanted to balance that with cutting spending in the areas of highest expenditure, which are Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Despite the still fragile recovery and evidence that corporations were already paring back retirement benefits and ratcheting down real wages, the idea gained steam. On a call with a group of all-white economist colleagues, we discussed how to advise leaders in Washington against this disastrous retrenchment. I cleared my throat and I said, so where should we make the point that all these programs were created without concern for their cost when the goal was what when the goal was to build a white middle class and they paid for themselves in economic growth. Now that, in other words, when these programs were created way back when, even back as far as the uh, Roosevelt time, uh, these programs were created without concern for cost when the goal was to build a white middle class. In other words, uh, yeah, going back to uh, FDR time in the 30s and 40s. And they paid for themselves in economic growth. Now these guys are trying to fundamentally renege on the deal for a future middle class that would be uh, a majority people of color. In other words, what she's saying is, is that when government spending um, disproportionately helps uh, minorities, the uh, white politicians are against it on the grounds of this is going to cost too much. But when it was vice versa, they weren't against it. Finally, one of the economists breached the awkward silence. Well, sure, Heather, we know that. And you know that. But let's not lead with our chin here. We're trying to be persuasive. In other words, trying to get the um, administration to, to go ahead and spend the money. The sad truth was that he was probably right. Soon the Tea Party movement, harnessing the language of fiscal responsibility and the subtext of white grievance, would shut down the federal government, win across-the-board cuts to public programs, and essentially halt the legislative function of the federal government for the next six years. You might remember this was the Newt Gingrich uh, uh, idea of don't ever give an inch, don't ever cooperate with the Democrats, don't pass any legislation. A jobless recovery followed by a slow, unequal economic expansion that hurt Americans of all backgrounds. So that means after 2008, and Gingrich was before that, but the philosophy uh, under six years of Obama was the same. Uh, it led to uh, a recovery from the 2007-2008 recession, but it was a kind of a jobless recovery. In other words, not a huge number. The, the unemployment rate went down. Uh, certainly it did in the last years of Obama, but it didn't go down to nothing. The anti-government stinginess of traditional conservatism, along with the fear of losing social status held by many white people, now, now broadly associated with Trumpism, have long been connected. Uh, both have sapped American society's strength for generations, causing a majority of white Americans to rally behind the draining of public resources and investments. Those very investments would provide white Americans, the largest group of of poor and uninsured people, greater security too. Um, a new uh, Federal Reserve Bank uh, study calculated that in 2019, the country's output would have been 2.6 trillion greater if the gap between white 
people and everybody else were closed. Um, and uh, same thing with another study. Um, now, here's what's interesting. In Montgomery, Alabama, I walked the grounds of what was once a grand public swimming pool, one of the more than 2,000 swimming pools built in the early 20th century. However, much like the era's government-backed suburban developments or GI Bill home loans, the pool was for whites only. So this is, in other words, post-Second World War. Uh, that's when the stuff was built. Threatened with a court action to integrate the pool in 1958, the town drained it instead, shuttering the entire park and recreation department. Even after the reopenings of parks a decade later, they never rebuilt the pool. Towns from Ohio to Louisiana lashed out in similar ways. In other words, when uh, towns, especially in the South, were forced to integrate their facilities, their recreation facilities, parks, even schools, um, swimming pools, and other public services, they reacted by closing down these services rather, rather than integrate them. Um, the civil rights movement, which widened the circle of public beneficiaries and could have heralded a more moral and prosperous nation, wound up diminishing white people's commitment to the very idea of public goods. In the late 1950s, over two thirds of white Americans agreed with the now radical idea that the government ought to guarantee a job for anyone who wants one and ensure a minimum standard of living for everyone in the country. White support for those ideas nosedived from around 70% to 35% from 1960 to 1964 and has remained low ever since. So what happened in 1964? Well, it was the passage of the Civil Rights Act. In other words, they agreed that the government should provide all white people with minimum standards. But the, but the idea that this, this would have to be shared with black and other people was so, um, so we'll say disapproved or hated by them that they said, well, we would rather suffer ourselves than to see black people gain anything. It's no historical accident that this dip coincided with the 1963 March on Washington when white Americans saw black activists demanding the same economic guarantees. And when Democrats began to promise to extend government benefits across the color line, it's also no accident that to this day, no Democratic presidential candidate has won the white vote since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. So that's really, uh, you know, kind of shocking, really kind of interesting. Um, racial integration portended the end of America's high tax, high investment growth strategy. Tax revenue hit its peak as a percentage of the economy in 1965. Again, 1965 is the beginning of the Civil Rights Act. So the tax collection as a percentage of the whole economy hit at that point. After the Civil Rights Act was passed and the government had to provide services to everybody, uh, the Republicans said, no, we don't want uh, to pay for it. So we're going to lower taxes for everybody, meaning for themselves, and the government then won't have the money to provide services to everybody, meaning to blacks and, and other non-whites. 
America's cap per capita government spending is near the bottom of all industrialized countries. Our roads, bridges, and water systems get a D plus from the American Society of Engineers. And unlike our peers, we don't have high-speed rail, universal broadband, mandatory paid family leave, or universal childcare. So here, here in, Can in Canada, we have everything except for high-speed rail. We have low-speed rail or no-speed rail. Um, but most everything we have. Universal broadband, uh, not quite yet. While growing corporate power and money and politics have certainly played a role, it's now clear that racial resentment is a key uncredited actor in our economic backslide. White people who exhibit low racial resentment against black people are 60 percentage more likely to support increased government spending than are those with high racial resentment. At the base of this resentment is a zero sum story. The default framework for conservative arguments uh, with references to makers and takers taxpayers and freeloaders. You might remember even Mitt Romney, who's now looked at a liberal, when he was running for president, he said, you know, I want to encourage makers, not takers. And uh, the takers always seem to be, um, you know, uh, insinuated to be uh, black people or, or other minorities. So a zero sum story means that whatever one person gains, another one loses. And so if you're spending money on blacks, it means you're taking it away from whites. And this is the, this is sort of the philosophy in the minds of the Republicans who uh, after 1965 refused to fund any real large government spending. Um, in my travels, I also realized that those seeking to repair America's social divides can invoke this sort of zero sum framing themselves. Uh, progressive off, progressives often end up talking about race relations through a prison of competition, uh, that every advantage for whites mirrored by a disadvantage for people of color. Um, so, uh, um, and, uh, but, but, you know, uh, in, in my research and her research and writing, I learned to focus on how white people benefit from systemic racism. Their schools have more funding, they have less contact with police, they have less, greater access to healthcare. These hallmarks of white privilege are not freedoms that racial justice activists want to take away from white people. They're just basic human rights and dignities that everybody should enjoy. And, and um, the, the right wing is eager to fill the gap when we don't finish the sentence. Um, so, um, uh, what she says is that for an entire generation of American politics, um, the, this sort of philosophy of zero sum, in other words, uh, doing things that will help, doing things that by definition, if you don't spend money on blacks, you're helping the whites. But what she's saying is that um, did white people win as a result of this philosophy? No. Many of them lost good jobs, benefits, and social mobility with the rest of us not born into wealth. And, um, uh, you know, she then talks about a woman uh, who um, worked in a fast food restaurant for a decade. And when they tried to get her to join the union, she said, no, uh, they'll never give us a $15 wage. You know, it's impossible. Um, um, and yet uh, she went to a meeting 
and she met a Latina woman who was uh, raising, you know, three children in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, and uh, she said, I, I, you know, finally get to understand her story and uh, that it pays to join forces with other people in order to win a better, uh, a better lifestyle. Anyway, that's the end of the author. Interesting one. Um, and it's an interesting way to look at things, especially the, the sort of uh, coincidence of uh, the stopping of government spending, the stopping of high taxation uh, at the very same time as um, the Civil Rights Act was passed. So, um, yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to do. Let me just check my watch here. OK, uh, I'm going to stop here just to make sense have any comments make, about you know, this. It's, not, uh, it's something that, that everyone knows to, about, but to actually uh, make a tie is what I found interesting in this particular article. I don't see anything yet, Mr. Dwaskin. Would okay. you like to wait another minute or two? Or would no, you like no, to no, if someone, someone has a comment, save it for the end. We'll, uh, I just also wanted to point out, of course, needless to say, the events of the week was the acquittal by the Senate of President Trump for... Um, for uh, inspiring a, an insurrection, but that definitely doesn't get him off the legal hook. And um, anyone who suffered in that insurrection, 140, uh, 140 police officers and uh, other, um, other uh, guards and things were injured, they could sue Trump in a civil court to say, look, the Senate found him guilty of inspiring a, an insurrection. He is definitely responsible. Um, he's not, uh, you know, he was acquitted for political reasons, but or for or for legalistic reasons. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't responsible. And you know, my arm broke in that um, insurrection, and I'm suing President Trump for for I don't know what, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars because you know his guys injured me. And he can face hundreds of lawsuits like that, and he will, because there's lawyers who are willing to step up and, and um, you know, file cases, and he has deep pockets, supposedly. So he can end up in court for a long time, you know, you know just, just for that, never mind for uh, the other things that he's being charged with, like um, trying to uh, overturn Georgia's law by uh, suborning uh, the... Uh, the uh, Secretary of State to asking him to change the results of the election. That's against Georgia law, and he has no protection in that way. And, you know, he's got lots of other lawsuits against him um, for his taxes in New York State and for false issuing false um, financial results to get better loans. I mean, he, he's up to his eyeballs in, in, in lawyers. So, you know, he um, I think that's what's going to be that's what he's going to be dealing with for a long time. Um, that's not the subject I wanted to speak about today, but I did want to speak about uh, a subject resulting from the insurrection and the prominent place that QAnon played, this organization played in, um, you know, in this insurrection. You know, you saw this guy with his crazy horns and his leather uh, coat and uh, you know, all these messages that these people are sharing. And so what I wanted to do today is to speak about cults and to review some of the more well-known cults that we've had in the 20, 21st and 20th centuries, just to remind you what they were all about. 
and uh, to see, you know, if they've got anything in common. And, um, you know, that's kind of an interesting sort of topical subject, the subject of cults. So, um, you know, the first problem we have is to define what a cult is. And um, uh, a cult is, uh, is an organization whose followers believe strongly um, in a uh, religious or spiritual or philosophical idea or follow, or, 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 or follow a personality object or goal. An occult always has a negative connotation. Um, they, um, no one who's in a cult says, I'm in a cult. No one would describe QAnon or any, uh, no member of these groups would call themselves a cult because the cult, the word cult has a very negative uh, connotation. Um, it kind of derives from uh, uh, a, a less negative uh, or more neutral um, idea where, for example, you had a, a cult of a saint where a cult would just mean a practice of following a particular saint in the Middle Ages. In French, you know, the word cult doesn't have the same meaning at all. It kind of just means uh, religion. It's kind of a short word for religion. Um, but uh, by the 19th century, excessive devotion, uh, and especially to something new and, uh, and, and strongly followed, that's what represented a cult. And the 19th century had plenty of them, and we're going to get into some of them uh, themselves. Um, uh, some of the... Uh, uh, you know, uh, people said, you know, a cult is a religion that I don't like. Um, you know, they could have hundreds of followers or thousands of followers. Um, and uh, often a cult sort of separates its members from everybody else. And the more the cutoff they are from the regular society, the more devoted they are to this cult, the more strong the cult becomes. Um, a cult could be uh, a kind of a sect that, do, that um, uh, divides from an established religion. Uh, a cult could be something brand new. Um, it could involve following a very charismatic leader. Um, it could be uh, a, uh, something that is devoted to sort of secret messages or holy books that only the followers understand. And very often there's a promise of deliverance or end days or an end reward to only to those people who are in the cult and who are strong followers. So there's this kind of um, reward promised at the end for people who are strongly devoted to this group. Um, and it gives them, of course, something to look forward to. Uh, often, of course, the, the, um, the main reward of the court is being associated with other people who are like you, you know, they form of a common fellowship, a sort of a society, could be even a secret society. And it's these bonds that hold the people together that often hold the people from leaving the cult because they're so attached to the other people that are in it. Um, uh, one thing that we know about the history of cults is that uh, when things go bad, they go very bad. 
because people are so fanatically attached to them, when things fall apart, then of course they really do fall apart. And they can fall apart for any of a number of reasons, especially uh, if the leader of the cult suffers some sort of uh, misfortune, problem, uh, you know, arrest, death, whatever, something like that. Needless to say, um, needless to say, uh, there isn't a universally agreed, um, uh, there isn't universal agreement on what a cult is. In other words, one man's cult might be another man's religion. Uh, if you don't agree with it and you think it's crazy, then you could call it a cult. If you're in it and you do agree with it and um, there isn't any, we'll call it um, uh, moral uh, problems, then um, you know it's just a society of believers in something. Um, so that's a, a bit of a a bit of a uh, starting of a, a point of ex explanation of what this is. So let's look a bit at some some kinds of cults. Uh, there's political cults, where it's a political idea that motivates the people who are attached to it. And uh, the political cult uh, is something that has political goals with a strong devotion to an individual uh, with non-mainstream ideas. So uh, some of you may remember, I certainly do, this guy, Lyndon LaRouche, he was, he was, um, he, he was like all over the place in, in Montreal and all over North America, handing out flyers uh, and asking people to kind of follow these um, far out right wing ideas. And they often ran for election and never got elected to anything. Um, Ayn Rand, you know, this famous uh, writer who, who wrote um, uh, economic political treatises, uh, often her followers are described as, as following in her cult, um, a mixture of religion and politics. You've heard of the Falun Gong. These are a, this is a Chinese um, kind of political, kind of spiritual group. Uh, you see them in Chinatown sitting, you know, and meditating and praying. Uh, with very strongly anti-communist Chinese uh, slogans. Uh, many of them have been arrested in China for, you know, uh, causing trouble. It's also a kind of a kind of a cult. Um, you know, uh, followers of, uh, of a strong political leader, you know, you know, you could stretch things and say, well, you know, are these Trump, these super Trumpy people, are they following a kind of a Trump cult? Uh, was Hitler the leader of some sort of a, again, a, 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 a political cult based on, based on his ideas? Uh, the followers were so strongly devoted to these people um, and in a way, in a non-objective way, and the, the people were so destructive that you could, you could say that they were so cut off from reality that they formed a sort of a cult. And, uh, you know, this is an idea about, uh, these are ideas of, of, political, of political cults. Um, uh, then uh, you get into kind of mixtures, cults that are sort of mixtures of religious ideas, and as I was saying, political ideas, 
And one of these was called the Unification Church, which um, was led by a Korean pastor, Sung Yung Moon was his name. And the people who followed this cult were called Moonies. And you might remember they were around uh, in the last century, um, in, uh, especially on the West Coast of the US, but pretty well all over the place. He was an anti-communist church leader. Um, uh, the movement is still active uh, and uh, the movement endorsed Trump. Um, and, um, you know, people who got involved in that group were, although the group wasn't in a sense harmful, it definitely was a cult because it separated uh, the members off from the rest of society. And, um, uh, you know, they were encouraged to give all their money to the church and to uh, carry out fundraising for the church. And it was, a, you know, it, it, it was a cult. Um, then you can have people who have harmless goals. Like you remember the Maharishi Yogi and his, uh, his band of people who would be, you know, going up and down St. Catherine Street with their symbols and their, and their waving their flags and their orange uh, outfits. Um, you know, a kind of a philosophy, a sort of a religion, but really basically a cult. The people who were involved in it, the Hare Krishnas, um, uh, certainly were a cult, harmless, mind you, uh, without any uh, severe kind of uh, consequences. But definitely people who were in that movement were uh, stuck in a cult. Um, many cults developed around a personality, like the Maharishi Yoga, or Sun Yung Moon, or other ones that we're going to talk about. Um, there are um, religious cults. Let's just speak a little bit about that. So the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, are a religious group, which many people call a cult because they isolate themselves and if you don't follow their instructions exactly, uh, they can banish you. They can break families up. They can order their members not to talk to their children um, if uh, you know the children don't agree with what is going on in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And as you know, they spend all day long preaching, knocking on doors and publishing uh, pamphlets and everything else. So, there isn't a kind of a harmful message that they're giving, but the, the actions themselves and the discipline that the cult requires uh, make, make it, you know, make some people call it a cult. Um, there's a very loose border between a cult and just a sort of charismatic leadership, etc. You know, some people may remember when the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself was alive and people going to visit him in streams and calling Mashiach Mashiach and calling him a Messiah. Uh, some people would call that a cult also. Again, without any sort of negative uh, results or any negative, um, uh, you know, societal actions. But the devotion, the strict devotion to this leader of a group um, uh, without any sort of counterbalancing is what is one of the definitions of a cult is. So we'll just, just to sort of tickle your brains to think of, well, maybe yes and maybe no. And it all depends what your previous ideas are as to whether you would want to call these type of play, 
these type of um, movements a cult or not. But there's definitely some other ones that are definitely cults. Um, uh, so um, uh, let's look at some other ones. Another, another, um, another uh, sort of motivation, I would call it a motivation uh, for starting a cult has to do with sexual practices. And sometimes these are the sort of real motivation for the cult, although that's not what the cult advertises. Um, in the 1830s in the United States, there were many, many different, we'll call them cults grew up. There was a tremendous amount of we'll call spiritual unrest in the USA in the 1830s. And many sort of groups came, uh, sprung, sprung about and then died off. Um, one of the ones that sprung up but didn't die off was the Mormons, the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints. Um, and this uh, definitely started off as a kind of a cult uh, and then broadened into what you would today call a mainstream religion. But uh, they uh, were followers of Joseph Smith who um, said that uh, uh, he had, um, uh, that an angel had planted the golden tablets in a hill that he discovered, uh, the tablets uh, written in some foreign language that he was able to decipher. And um, this message uh, he had to bring to his followers and he gathered his followers and um, tried to make a community which was a um, uh, polygamous community. In other words, men were able to marry more than one wife, which was not allowed in the US at the time. Uh, nevertheless, this was his kind of idea. And he was such a charismatic leader that people followed him and they followed him uh, to his community in Ohio where uh, he was kicked out uh, for, uh, I would call it financial fraud issuing notes that were in, 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 in issuing kind of a bank currency that had no value. And then he, you know, moved to Illinois where uh, he had even more followers and um, uh, subsequently um, he was killed and his, the rest of his followers picked up and moved to Utah where, you know, they established the church today. And, you know, in 1890, as a condition of joining the United States, they had to drop the Mormons had to drop their uh, polygamous uh, uh, beliefs. And where some of them continued on with these polygamous beliefs, uh, kind of in secret, and one of them uh, resulted in a new cult, uh, you know, this, uh, this um, Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, um, uh, uh, the Fundamentals Church, was left, led by a cult leader, Warren Jeffs, who subsequently was arrested for, um, for uh, having sex with underage children and where he's still in jail today. So uh, a cult that developed into a mainstream religion and an offshoot which developed into a cult. And, you know, that's interesting how these things go. Um, the other sort of uh, cults that we can mention on this sort of scale would be the Manson family. You know that story from Hollywood where Charles Manson had a sort of harem of women and, uh, you know, ended up uh, 
committing murder and, uh, you know, uh, he's in jail, sitting in jail today. Uh, by the way, his followers were just uh, refused bail again after something like 30 years in jail. Um, uh, Nexium, the one which was featured in the, just recently in Hollywood uh, movie uh, or I mean TV show, Keith Rainier was was um, was the head of it, and uh, the, uh, Claire Bronfman, one of the Bronfman uh, women, uh, was his chief backer. And it was a kind of a, we'll call it again, I won't call it a polygamous cult, but Mr. Rainier himself uh, uh, was such a charismatic personality that he, um, he, he taught his followers that, they, you know, he, uh, he could have any woman he wants. And it was a kind of a sort of a self-help uh, financial uh, idea, uh, but uh, he's in jail now. He hasn't been sentenced, but he's in jail now. But that was definitely a cult. Um, and, and some lesser well-known ones also, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Perez, uh, 1987 to 2003, he told his followers he was a thousand year old angel and that having sex with young girls was uh, what, uh, uh, you know, God uh, announced for him. Uh, and, you know, he's in jail now. Um, uh, the uh, etc. You know, there's lot, lots, lots of these type of things, lots of these sort of movements. Um, and we're going to go into uh, some more of them. Um, so these were the polygamous sort of uh, cults that had had some sexual component to them. Uh, there's sort of racist cults. You know, uh, in a way, you might say that the Ku Klux Klan is a sort of a cult and the Proud Boys, the ones that are, you know, involved now. It's hard to know, it's hard to, hard to say, but, uh, you know, um, you could make the case that the Ku Klux Klan was a cult. Um, and, um, you know, their, their main motivating idea was to oppress black people uh, uh, and other non-whites, non uh, non-Christian whites in the United States. Um, now, there's another type of a cult, and that these are doomsday cults. So here the motivation isn't politics. Here the motivation isn't racism. Here the motivation isn't sexual liberty. But it's a kind of a, a, kind of a doomsday belief. And uh, I think that uh, you could actually go back in history into prehistory. The Mayans have um, had uh, sculptures which were red, uh, which they showed that the world would end in 600 years from the time it was written down. And those, those uh, things were made somewhere in the 1400s. And so, you know, there were some people who said, well, the, the world would end around 2000 because of what the Mayans did in for. Um, in the U.S., there were groups called the Millenarists who, who uh, again, this goes back to the 1830s, who believed that the world would always, always end in a few years from when they were uh, prophesying. And they told people to sell all their belongings, to um, gather together on a hill and to watch the end of the days. And of course, when the end of the days never came, these groups kind of broke apart. 
The inspiration for these ideas came from the uh, New Testament book of Revelation, which is full of a bunch of, um, uh, we'll call them end of days philosophies and of kind of the war between good and evil. And, and these ideas even predate Christianity. They, they, they go back to um, prehistory and certainly to, um, you know, Zoroastrian themes from Persia, um, where uh, there's always a fight between good and evil uh, and where good will win out in the end, but there has to be a battle and there has to be a, a judgment of people, um, the end of days. Uh, and, and these ideas were taken literally by some people and they saw in their own lives, sometimes their lives were so down and so miserable that they said, well, this is a sign that the end of days has to be coming soon because we need deliverance. And charismatic preachers came up around the, around the country to preach to um, sort of biblically, biblical semi-literate people and convince them that the end of days was just around the corner. So the millenarists were one group in the U.S. who did this in the 1830s and 40s. And uh, this kind of idea has continued uh, really uh, up until now, up until today. Um, the uh, Let's talk a little bit about, let me just check my watch here, okay. The Branch Davidians were a um, an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventists, and many of you know the story of David Koresh, who gathered his um, followers in Waco, Texas, to, again, kind of to wait for the end of days. Uh, they armed themselves uh, with uh, heavy arsenals, and uh, it was also there was also uh, um, again a sexual component to this, where David Koresh himself, the prophet, uh, felt he had the right to have sex with any uh, woman he wanted in his group, and um, uh, you know it ended with a shootout and the killing of uh, of many many people in there with a fire. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, we'll call it the actions of the FBI reverberate until today with people who are against the FBI and against the federal government for uh, having uh, caused the deaths of all these people. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the Branch Davidians. Um, there was a group called, let me just go into this here, just a little more here, Doomsday Cult. Um, yeah, so that ended in, in 1993 with 80, 82 people dying. There's another cult that you might remember of called the Cult of the Solar Temple. This is actually affects us here in Quebec, where it was founded in 1984, another Doomsday Cult another cult uh, involving sexual conduct and the police, and involving in 1994, uh, a mass suicide and killing of 74 people, including five people in Quebec. Um, and then there was the, um, the, uh, the, the um, Heaven's Gate one. The Heaven's Gate one was where uh, in the 1970s to the 1990s, uh, people felt they had to leave the earth before uh, before the earth was destroyed. And they thought that they would sort of get onto some kind of a comet that would be passing by. And um, they uh, all uh, committed suicide in Southern California. 42 people did um, 
in this uh, Heaven's Gate uh, sort of mass suicide cult. A much more well-known one was the People's Temple. Uh, Jim Jones, uh, the founder of this kind of, uh, he was a preacher. He was somebody who believed that people had to do practical things in order to sort of save themselves besides religion. So he was a kind of a preacher, but at the same time, he he founded communes in Los Angeles and San Francisco, a great believer in racial equality who had thousands of followers. Um, and uh, his group or was sect was founded in Indiana in 1955. They moved to California, but in, you know, again, because of uh, sort of uh, rumors of um, malfeasance, uh, he moved in 1978 to Guyana uh, to evade scrutiny by the press. And he founded uh, what he tried to found in in, in, in San Francisco and in LA was sort of communes. And he founded a, a, a town in Guyana called Jonestown, Jonestown after himself, James Jones. It was a sort of a kibbutz where he had about 900 people living there. Um, but uh, needless to say, uh, you know, f- founding a commune is not the easiest thing in the world. And uh, people started to complain. Um, the press uh, sent, uh, started to uh, promote, promote ru- not rumors, but stories about maltreatment of the people in there. And so a congressman went there to check things out and he was shot. Um, and after he was shot, the congressman and three others, uh, J- Jim Jones knew the end was near. And he got uh, 900 people to commit suicide by drinking Kool-Aid with poison in it. And so, you know, the phrase drinking Kool-Aid comes from that. It was a terrible tragedy that all these people had to die for nothing. And, uh, you know, that was the end of Jim Jones and Jonestown. Uh, There was another guy in Japan, uh, Aum Shin Rikyo, 1984. He said the apocalypse was going to come. And he wanted to help the apocalypse by poisoning people in the Tokyo subway, where 13 people died. And uh, he ended up being hanged in jail. And Japan is a country that never practices um, uh, the death penalty, but him and his followers were hung because the society was just so outraged by what happened there. So there's another, uh, another example of a cult gone Gone, uh, gone astray. Um, there um, are other sort of, uh, we'll call them borderline cults, like the Church of Scientology, which isn't a church for sure, but is a, a sort of a cult in a way, um, founded by somebody who uh, said, uh, you know, how can I make money without it being taxed? And, uh, you know, use psychology or psychological self-help. And he wrote a book uh, promoting this and um, founded the so-called Church of Scientology, which, uh, again, is a kind of a cult in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, as when, when the outside world attacks you, you become more defensive and you make a kind of a circle around you. And then you and the leader uh, are tied together. And that sort of becomes a cult. And um, I would put the Church of Scientology in that. Um, If you think of it, if you think of it, 
you know, believing in some fantastical idea with a charismatic leader, um, you know, how about the founding of Christianity itself, where uh, Jesus had a, a group of followers, uh, and, you know, when he was um, killed, uh, you know, they believed that he was resurrected and came back to life. And um, his followers would have been considered a cult in their day. And then, of course, you know, the ideas uh, spread to uh, Christianity becoming one of the world's major religions. So sometimes things can start off like a cult, like in a way like the Mormons did, and then turn into a mainstream religion. But most often these cults uh, suffer a kind of a natural end when uh, the leader uh, sees that he can't get any farther or commits uh, crimes that then get uh, publicized and the police close in. And, you know, sometimes this ends with sort of a, a killing or a mass suicide. And so, um, you know, it's worthwhile to think about this when we hear about something like QAnon, which is uh, unusual about a cult because it's a, um, a series of uh, fantastical beliefs, but with no leader, with no known uh, single leader who's doing the preaching, but where the internet itself serves as the medium where the beliefs of the cult are spread. And in the case of QAnon, it's that President Trump is, is uh, trying to save the world from a um, satanistic um, cabal of uh, pedophiles uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that basically, uh, you know, that, that, that there's this, you know, deep kind of, uh, swamp and only president Trump knows the way out of it. And so, uh, they were prominent in the, um, in the insurrection, uh, or the riot of January the 6th, because they felt that this was president Trump had called upon them. And this was the last chance to prove the prove this sort of prophecy that President Trump is going to be president forever. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that's kind of the origin of it. Uh, often when the cult's major idea proves to be false, the cult falls apart, uh, as did the, the ones thinking about the end of the world coming. And by the way, there was another cult, uh, I should mention, that they figured that the year 2000, remember when things turned from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, they thought the world would end at that point because how could you have anything in the 2000s? And uh, So again, they fall apart because two, January 1 was no different than December 31st. Um, so now that Trump is out of office, it remains to be seen if this QAnon uh, will sort of fall apart because he was the sort of centerpiece of their of their belief system. But sometimes these cults turn into other things. You know, they'll they'll use their followers to promote uh, uh, a similar idea with a different uh, color on it, or you know, something like that. So uh, we're you know we're not at the end of the QAnon uh, conspiracy. Um, but it's a, it's a symptom of something. Any cult is a symptom of something. It's a symptom that people are so detached from reality that they could adopt a series of beliefs that to outsiders seem so ridiculous 
um, that no sane person would, would follow these ideas. And yet, you know, if you go into their heads and into their minds, if they are that detached and they could believe, you know, some of these crazy ideas and you wonder sort of what's wrong with society that would allow people to pick up these ideas on the one hand. And um, how is it possible that these people in a way can't sort of see the light and come out of it themselves because their ideas are so, so fantastical. Um, the internet today allows people to communicate only with other people who have the same ideas. Um, because there isn't a kind of a, you know, CBS, NBC, um, and ABC news, and people could watch their own news on their own uh, internet channels, um, and they are just constantly reinforced and fed the ideas that they already believe in. So uh, let me just check my watch. Yeah, okay. So um, that's my uh, little bit of a presentation about cults and how they fit into today's news. And um, if you have any questions or comments or either on the first subject, which was, uh, and to broaden it out, it's to say, you know, how is it that a certain segment of uh, white people in the U.S., the Trump followers, will act against their own economic interests um, because they uh, don't want to reward people who, who, who they don't like, in other words, say non-whites, um, with government spending. In other words, they say, I'd rather have less money for welfare, job support, and, and raising the minimum wage if this is going to benefit um, other people who I don't like. And uh, everyone, you know, who is a kind of a liberal thinking person says, you know, these people, the poor, uh, uneducated, non-college educated whites um, were voting against their own interests by voting for the Republican Party. And, you know, people would say, well, they're naive. But on the other hand, the other argument is, no, they're not naive. They just feel that it's more important to deprive other people of something than to reward themselves with something. And this sort of thinking is, uh, you know, uh, not, not that uncommon. So, yeah, tell me if you've got any questions, comments. I'm here to listen. Um, or if you've got any questions about something else, you know, things I've spoken about in the past, uh, you could ask me too. Any suggestions for future classes? which I already have one. I haven't forgotten about that one I'm on the Indigenous people of Canada, but um, we'll see. Maybe next week we'll speak about that too. Hi, Mr. Dwaskin. It's Angie. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, in your opinion, do you think the Church of Scientology or Scientologists are in a cult? Uh, yes, I, I do believe that. Um, I do believe that, um, and uh, it's um, it's uh, because the uh, the again when the, when the group is tight knit when the, when the fundamental idea of of any sort of a cult is a sort of a flawed one, 
when there is excessive devotion to a leader, um, that, those are the ingredients for a cult. And the Church of Scientology is definitely not a church. You know, as I said, it was established in order not to pay taxes because ta churches are tax-free in, in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, uh, and there isn't any sort of a sort of, we'll call it a, there isn't any religious philosophy in this, in this so-called Church of Scientology. Um, but uh, it's really a mechanism to get people to pay for courses and to, um, uh, to get them sort of deeper and deeper in it and to promote them uh, by having them pay for more and more courses. And this uh, same idea was taken up by Keith Rainier of Nexium, who uh, had exactly the same idea or who copied the Church of Scientology and said, you know what, if I could give people um, self-esteem by promoting them, and if I can get them to pay for more courses to get promoted, this is kind of a, you know, a money-making scheme uh, on the one hand, and it reinforces my leadership on the other hand. And that's what the Church of Scientology is all about. Although the Church of Scientology is kind of old, I would say, by, by um, you know, cult standards. It's been around now for probably 70 odd years. I think they might have gotten started in the 1950s or early 60s. Thank you very much. Oh, I see a question that just popped up. Okay. It's by an anonymous attendee. It said, and the question is, could some Hasidic Jews be considered leaning towards being like a cult? So I, I sort of touched on that before. And uh, the answer is quite complicated. In some aspects, yes. And definitely in other aspects, no. So... Hasidic Jews um, um, uh, are followers of, I would call, um, mainstream Orthodox Judaism. So there isn't an invention of some kind of new beliefs. There isn't an invent. There isn't a really. Um, there's nothing politically political about it. Uh, there is nothing sexual about it. Uh, the end of days, well, you know, the belief that the Messiah is coming is definitely a sort of an end of days idea, but there is no um, accompanying belief that um, they should commit suicide if the end of days don't show up. Now, I, I remember speaking to uh, one of the Lubavitcher Hasid who said that for sure, uh, by the year 6,000, uh, in the Jewish year 6,000, uh, meaning in about 230 odd years, 220 uh, something years from now, the Messiah will definitely be here. And I said, well, you know, what happens if it's not? Um, you know, do you wait till the very last day and then decide, okay, I'm not a Hasidic Jew anymore? But I was assured that the Messiah would be here in 230 years. So, you know, there was no attempt to deal with that um, hypothetical uh, question. Um, 
it becomes a cult if it causes you to cut off relations with the rest of your family, if, it's, if they're not in it to the same degree as you are. If it causes you to devote all your energy to that particular uh, group, uh, if it causes you to follow a leader no matter what, um, then it could be a kind of a cult. But by and large, uh, even Hasidic Judaism, even people who are followers of the particular rebbe's that are the leaders of the dynasties uh, in Hasidism, uh, they're not cut off from the outside world. They have relationships with people who are outside their own group. Um, they are not uh, leading lives in a destructive way. So although there's elements of a cult in it, uh, particularly when the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself was living, uh, nowadays after he's passed away, um, uh, some of this sort of steam went out of the Chabad movement uh, uh, in that way, uh, particularly those who saw the Rebbe as a Messiah himself, and there aren't there are some people who did, but uh, as I said, uh, it, it's um, you know to my to my thinking, it's not of a cult, not a cult, but there's no strong dividing line between th these things. They sort of edge, you know. There's gray areas, and they sort of can spread back and forth, and uh, you know, uh, in that way. So, uh, but by and large, I would say no. I would say that the the Lubavitchers and other Hasidic movements are not really cults. Sometimes cults will punish people for leaving them. And uh, certainly we've seen in, um, you know, in cases of uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, where uh, if you want to leave the group, you are shunned, banned, etc., like the Jehovah's Witnesses do that. Um, so, you know, like in that sense, there are elements cult-like elements in that in in those movements i don't know what you think but that's that's kind of what i think so i see another question mr dwaskin yeah uh, and this one is by steve he's asking yeah. what about groups that have no defined leaders such as antifa or groups like black lives matter or the 1619 project uh, okay, so we're getting in. So uh, as I said, there's definitely, there are cults with no leaders and QAnon is a great example of that. The ones that you mentioned, Black Lives Matters and Antifa and 1619 are definitely not cults um, because they're not all encompassing. They're not something that takes over your whole life. And that's really one of the best ways that you can Look at it. If 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 your whole life is encompassed in 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 devoting yourself to uh, a particular group of people, who um, and you are cut off from the rest of society, uh, you know, and I'm inspired especially by an idea which is not rational. Uh, these are good markers of a cult. But Black Lives Matter uh, is a kind of a, we'll call it a social political organization that just says that black people should be treated the same as everybody else. So that certainly is not a non-mainstream idea. Um, the 1619 uh, Project is another black uh, movement which uh, uses the year when slaves were first brought to the United States to say 
that there should be financial compensation for the for the descendants of people who who were enslaved um, for hundreds of years and never paid. So that's not a in, you know that again that's a sort of an economic social political belief, but it certainly isn't a cult. And Antifa, which are, which is a short version of anti-fascist, is um, uh, uh, I think more of an imaginary movement on the right than anything else. But these are people who um, uh, want to take action uh, primarily in response to uh, right-wing, uh, we'll call them um, militias, or who want to change society in other ways. Uh, but it's a sort of a political movement, very loosely organized and um, uh, definitely not in the, not in the cult uh, frame, you know. Um, most often cults have charismatic leadership, most often. Uh, and I, you know, I mentioned a few of these different people who, 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 you know, gather followers around them and whose charismatic personalities are, are so strong that they break the ties between the outside world and their followers. And that, that's really a measure of a cult, especially if the ideas that they have are um, and we'll call them antisocial, we'll call them, you know, uh, in some way dangerous. And, uh, you know, that, that's really how, what a cult would be. But certainly not the three items that you mentioned, in my idea, anyway. Someone else, Thank maybe? Uh, I don't see any more questions, but I would like to mention that I just saw on my uh, on my phone that um, Donald Trump is actually getting sued by a Democratic. Um, yeah, I think a member of the from, Mississippi. The, uh, from Congress. Yeah, and he's I naming think... Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, yeah, like I said, and uh, uh, I mean. He's naming you know, the defendants as Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, uh, just to, just to uh, I, I know what you're referring to. And as, as I was saying before, uh, a civil suit is something where um, you're asking for financial damages or financial compensation for some kind of damage that you caused. Now, um, uh, for example, uh, there was uh, one of the police officers suffered a heart attack in in the riot. And he might say, you know, if it wasn't for President Trump, I wouldn't have had my heart attack. Now that I have a heart attack, it's going to cost me years off my life. It's going to cost me all kinds of money to look after myself. And who's responsible? You know, who sent that mob down to the Capitol and who didn't stop them when they could? Well, it was President Trump. OK, I'm suing you. Now, the burden of proof in a civil suit is just a preponderance of evidence. So in other words, you don't have to absolutely prove that one thing led to another. You just have to prove, well, what's, what's more likely to have happened? That it wouldn't have happened if President Trump uh, was there or, or, you know, or not. And if a preponderance of evidence says that President Trump was responsible, and Mitch McConnell himself, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, said Trump was definitely responsible. Then, then, the, then the question becomes, well, how much are the damages? 
let's say a, a, a judge, a court case can decide, you know, he was responsible, but the people who came in and, and who caused the riot, they were also responsible. So let's hold Trump 25% responsible. So he has to pay 25% of the damages that this person is claiming. It's as simple as that. And, you know, he can be sued multiple times by multiple people. Uh, the congressmen who were in who were in the uh, chamber who were scared to death, they could say, hey, you know, you, you took years off my life uh, because you scared me to death. I thought the, you know, they were going to bang down the doors and kill me. You know, why should I have to live through that? You know, who's responsible for that? Well, it's President Trump. Well, he could say I'm not responsible, but, you know, fine. I'll, we'll sue you and see what the judge says. The judge could say, yeah, you're 10% responsible. I'm suing you for a million dollars, so you owe me 100000 Uh To me, this is a very logical outcome of uh, the American court system. And you could sue anybody for anything. And when Mitch McConnell says he's responsible, well, there's your proof right there. So it's going to be interesting. I think Trump is going to be up to his ears in court cases for years to come. That's what I think. So we have another question by Steve. Yeah. And his question is, um, regarding civil suits of Donald Trump, do the losers of the su suits have to pay legal fees of both sides of the legal case? If not, uh, the court isn't be clogged with frivolous lawsuits? Right. Uh, yes, that is the idea. If you lose in a lawsuit, you do have to pay, if the, if, if the other side demands it, you do have to pay the other side's legal fees. So that is, uh, you know, uh, an incentive not to launch frivolous lawsuits. But I certainly would guess that, you know, any suit against Trump uh, for people who suffered in this uh, case would not be considered frivolous. At worst, at worst, if they lose the suit, uh, the judge can say, well, you're not responsible for the other side's legal fees because you made on the surface what looks like a decent claim. And remember that, uh, you know, a judge has a wide, uh, let's call it field of uh, choice. Uh, he, he, uh, he or she can decide a lot of different things in this sort of a type, in this kind of a case. So, um, you know, very often Trump's, his whole, his whole uh, modus operandi was to sue people and to say, you know, I'll keep you in court for years and I don't care, I'm rich, I could pay my lawyers for years and we'll just beat you down to nothing. You know, to people who he didn't pay, all the contractors he didn't pay, uh, tenants who he, uh, he dealt with unfairly. Um, he had, uh, uh, you know, he, he instructed his managers not to hire, not, not to rent to blacks. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, you want to sue me, sue me. We'll see what happens. We'll see, I'll wait it out. That was his system. But now the shoe is going to be on the other foot because um, there are so many people who are willing to pay the legal fees of people suing Trump that he doesn't have the choice of sort of uh, delaying things forever and ever and ever. Um, and the same goes with Rudy Giuliani. And uh, it's very possible that, you know, Giuliani could lose his, um, his law license because you're not allowed to... Uh, legally, you're not allowed to knowingly tell a lie. In 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 uh, uh, a lawyer is held to different standards than other people, and um, you know, definitely, 
a case could be made to deprive him of his law license. And I think it will be made, by the way. I don't know if it will succeed, but I think people will try to make it. Um, I don't see any more questions, Mr. Dwaskin. So do you have any words of wisdom for today's lecture um, or just every day? Well, um, let's see now. Um, yeah, I, I think that the, um, you know, the echoes of this riot will last for a long time. The January the 6th riot, that's one thing. Uh, we'll be reading about them months from now. The FBI is still looking for hundreds of people uh, who participated in, who damaged it. Um, I also was reading an interesting article saying that, um, you know, it was always Trump who was hugging the flag and who was, you know, proclaiming his patriotism. But when you saw the rioters take the flag and beat the officers, and he was also, you know, proclaiming his love for men in blue. And when you saw the people, you know, taking the American flag and hitting officers with it, uh, it showed a, a, such a great respect for disrespect for the flag and for the men in blue. And so this sort of, well, I would call it a false patriotism, uh, is not going to be in the playbook of the Republicans anymore because, you know, the Democrats can just say, well, if you love the flag so much, look at all your guys with the Trump flags, what they were doing. So that's uh, one part of this. Um, I just also wanted to, uh, for those of you who are interested in Israeli politics, to mention that the Israeli elections are coming up in uh, less than three weeks or close to three weeks, around three weeks. And so maybe uh, in one or two weeks, I'll give a sketch of the uh, different political parties who are running for office, uh, who their leaders are, what their programs are, uh, what are the possibilities for a government to be formed there. It's really an interesting subject because Israel is one of the best examples of an experiment in democracy where uh, the proportional representation system is the only one that's used. And, uh, um, you know, there's almost no democratic countries in the world that are left that use this strict proportional representation system. And it's the, the political setup is a result of that system. And so it's a kind of, a, we'll call it an experiment in political science. So we'll see what happens uh, in the next little while about this. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in and for listening. I so much appreciate it. And thank you, Angela, for hosting. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.